0: Hello, and welcome to Oats for Breakfast.
1: Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with The Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto.
0: My name is Brent. My name's Laura. Today we are going to be chatting with Adam King about labor standards in the US and Canada.
1: Adam's a sociologist. He currently holds a postdoctoral fellowship at York University.
2: Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Adam. Thanks for having me on.
1: Okay, so rather than talking about the importance of labor standards in an abstract way, maybe we should begin by approaching the issue in concrete terms. So it looks as if Bernie Sanders has a decent shot at winning the 2020 U.S. presidential race. So Adam, you recently wrote a piece um, entitled "What Can Bernie Sanders' Administration Do for Labor Standards?" Can you walk us through a little bit of um, a little bit about that article?
2: Sure. So what motivated that ar- article actually was that. Sanders hadn't really released anything about labor standards. He'd spent a lot of time talking about unions, the importance of unionization, and uh, using his campaign to highlight striking workers, also use his mailing list to promote support for various strikes, which was really important, but he hadn't said much about um, labor standards. And in the U.S., the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal legislation that regulates minimum labor standards, is extremely out of date and has all kinds of problems and violations of it is systematic and pervasive throughout the country. So I thought it might be a good idea to reflect on some of the ways that a Sanders administration could improve that situation, first and foremost by employing more people within the Department of Labor to actually enforce the law, um, but then also ways that the legislation could be improved in order to make employers more responsible and to improve the lot of low-wage workers in the U.S. economy.
0: Okay. Um So, what were some of those ways that you thought it could be improved?
2: Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, they desperately need to increase the staffing levels. Um, The Wage and Hours Division, which is the part of the Department of Labor, which enforces the Fair Labor Standards Act, has about 1,000 personnel. And at the state level, they also have additional personnel, but it's largely the federal government that's responsible for enforcing. Um, And, I mean, that's just highly inadequate. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And across the country, I mean, as I wrote in the article, workplaces are shrinking, which means that the staff is spread over more workplaces with fewer workers in them. It's very resource intensive. Uh, on top of that, you have complex ownership structures now, um, what David Weil, who was, used to be the director of the um, Wage and Hours Division under Obama calls fissured workplaces, which is essentially um, the growth of subcontractors, temporary help agencies, those types of relationships, where it's difficult sometimes to determine who the employer is and even more difficult to enforce the law. So provisions that would help improve that situation Um and also to change the focus of how the organization operates. So, currently, most of the time it relies on workers coming forward and complaining, which is not all that helpful when uh, most of these workers are in situations that are very precarious. Sometimes their citizenship is precarious, sometimes they just happen to be in low-wage work that they're very dependent on, and complaining is extremely risky. Um, switching to a more proactive system where they actually have the staff to investigate high-risk employers is a much better approach, and it also has um, a greater deterrence uh, mechanism as well. If if employers know that they could be inspected and know that they could be punished adequately, they're more likely to obey the law.
1: Yeah, and Adam, this is something that I found really um, pertinent in your article is Given the situation we're in in the Ontario provincial government, where we very clearly have an austerity regime that's been introduced, I think we can pretty fairly expect to see similar phenomenon increasing in Ontario.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Bill 148, which was the Liberals' reform to the Employment Standards Act in Ontario, which increased the minimum wage um, first to 14, and then it was supposed to go to 15, but also made a bunch of... um, fairly progressive changes to the Employment Standards Act, like instituting paid sick days, some provisions around protecting people who uh, are temporary employment agency workers. Uh, But since Ford's election, he's rolled back most of those gains. Um, The only one, thankfully, that wasn't taken away was the um, domestic violence leave, which Mm -hmm. is still in place. But the paid sick days are gone. He got rid of, um, of course, he canceled the minimum wage hike, Reinstated the overtime averaging. So now you can average overtime hours across weeks. So it means that many low wage workers won't be getting overtime pay any longer. And in general, just reduced the overall staffing. To the Ministry of Labor. Um, the Liberals planned to hire, I believe it was 150 additional employment standards officers. I think that they hired about a third of them before they lost the election. So an additional probably around 100 officers who weren't hired. And one of their first announcements when Ford came in was that they were going to cancel the expansion of, of um, proactive inspections. So that was a, a major, major setback.
1: Yeah. I would also add on the collective bargaining side, they reversed a bunch of the Better legislation that the liberals had introduced previously too. like it's becoming much they're making it much more uh, difficult to certify a union by removing card based certification in many industries. So it's not just on the traditional employment side. It's um, completely far reaching and employment and labor.
0: What is card based certification again?
2: Yeah, so card-based certification essentially takes – there's usually two steps to unionizing. The first is sort of to sign cards to prove that there are an adequate number of people within a workplace who want to unionize. And then they make make the petition to the – if it's in Ontario, the Ontario Labor Relations Board. And then there's an election held. And there's a sort of – period in between there where, you know, employers usually try to engage in some type of of, uh, activity to discourage people from unionizing. Yeah. So, um, card base is essentially removing that second step so that if you get a majority card count, you form the union.
1: And they use it a lot in construction, for instance, but they were going to... Like, you. not every industry is allowed to use it. It's in the act, right? So and they perv- were going to let more industries use it.
0: So it prevents this sort of secondary period in which employers rally against the unionization drug Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, it should also sort of make us ask how the liberals really... I mean, they did some progressive things in Bill 148 in employment standards, but they really... They really stopped short when it came to the collective bargaining side of things, to the industrial relations Mm -hmm. side. I mean, many unions were pushing for a more sectoral approach to bargaining because of those issues that I was talking about with ownership structures. It's very, very difficult to organize in our contemporary economy because of the growth of these strange employment relationships where, I mean, like, take franchising, for for instance. If somebody wants to organize a Tim Hortons, they literally have to go Tim Hortons by Tim Hortons to organize those that's, workers. That's true. It's crazy. never going to happen, yeah. right? And anybody who's able to organize one particular franchise, all they're really doing is putting that franchise at a strategic disadvantage in terms of its profitability relative to other Tim Hortons. I mean, that's the argument against it. So, if you had been able to get some legislation that makes it easier, let's say, if, you know, a couple of Tim Hortons unionize and then you can hold a vote or you can have some sort of legislative mechanism to extend those collective agreements across the sector, it's much easier to organize under those circumstances. So, for example, in Quebec, there's legislation where you can do that in certain industries. The use of it has been rolled back, but it's still fairly good legislation. So mm-hmm. having something like that in Ontario would have been really helpful, and liberals just wouldn't go that far.
1: I think it's mentioned in the federal, initi- the federal initiative to overhaul the labor standards. They're looking into more sectoral-based systems, but...
0: Yeah, Doesn't seem well, like- and without that, how are you going to organize the service sector, which is like what everyone keeps saying that unions need to do now in view of the sort of decline of manufacturing and, and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, there's a sort of historical component to that that kind of needs to be like brought out like why do we have this system where on the one hand we have minimum employment standards and on the other hand we have industrial relations and why is it easy to get certain workers into collective agreements or unionize and in other instances it's almost impossible and the reason for that is because we have this decentralized bargaining system in Canada in the United Mm -hmm. States in the U.S. they call it Wagnerism after the Wagner Act but it's essentially it's very similar in Canada and so essentially what happened was That They took a kind of normative workplace, which was a male-dominated, industrial, large workplace, as the norm where unions would form. And so the regulations and the rules about how you access unionization are built on that normative framework. And everyone who's not in that, which tended at the time to be women, it's highly gendered, has a difficult time forming unions. And so they're dependent on minimum employment standards.
1: And it's also, um, women are disproportionately unionized in Canada now versus men. So it's a system that's not set up for the people who are most
2: using it. Yeah. And that's largely because of the growth of public sector yeah. unionism. Yeah.
0: yeah. Which I guess gets me to one of the main things I was thinking about when I was reading your article, Adam, and when I, when I read stuff about labor standards in general, is like, how do, I think because on the left, like, often the response is, and certainly was my response for a while, was well, you don't need labor standards, you need a union. So just push for unions, you know what I mean? And like, increasingly, I'm finding that inadequate. Um, or I don't know, I'm open to uh, to other arguments now. like Because by focusing on unions, then we also then just ignore all these other issues. Because mm-hmm. we said, oh, well, the problem is you don't have a union. And, and that's what we're going to focus on. But increasingly, those people regulated by collective bargaining is, is, is fewer and fewer. And especially in a legal context in which it's very hard to unionize, as you said, um, how do we then relate to labor standards? Like, do you think we need a renewed emphasis on labor standards on the left? I was just wondering what your thoughts were in that sense.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely traveled down that same sort of road of thinking like employment standards is just like, we're too weak to talk about unions. So we're falling back on hoping that the policy wonks do something for us. Mm. But- I mean, increasingly, I sort of realized that because of the way historically that unionization has functioned in North America, it's meant that we're now in a situation where greater numbers of workers are dependent on employment standards. So, those jobs that were thought to be marginal at the time that collective bargaining was introduced have moved into a much more central place in the economy. And they're occupied by people who are disproportionately female, disproportionately racialized, and um, ha- are likely to have precarious uh, immigration status. So, by ignoring it, you're ignoring the most inv- most vulnerable workers in the economy often. And if we want to focus on, on unions, which we absolutely should, I mean, building worker power is central to any socialist project, any left project, then we have to also really think about changing the way that people access unionization. Like, we need to move towards some type of sectoral system that gives people that makes it easier to organize unions in these new workplaces. Um, The, the nature of work really, really did change the nature of workplaces and the forms of employment between about the mid eighties and the late nineties. And it sort of stabilized there, but you know, a real growth in part-time work and temporary work, contract work, all these sort of like supposedly non-standard forms of work are now much more standard. And, you know, at present, because it's so difficult to unionize them, employment standards is really where you're going to make the difference.
1: On that same note, another major issue um, that we look to when we look at the differences between unionized labor and traditional employment relationships is the issue of collective voice. Hmm. So on that same note that you guys were talking about, look, not trying to abandon the project of improving labor standards, what do you think are some ways that collective voice can be exercised in a traditional employment relationship?
2: for non-union for a non-uni-
1: uh, not a traditional employment relationship but rather non-unionized cuz i work. saw
0: that in the you shared with us the federal expert panel on labor standards which i guess maybe we should explain they're going through a uh, but one of the the subjects was collective voice for non-unionized. And I was like, what is that? Mm -hmm. That sounds like
2: some third way. Yeah, it's a very Pomo term, (laughs) isn't it? Collective voice.
1: I didn't think of it that way. That's funny. I
2: I sort of, at at first was like collective voice. You mean collective power, but you can't say it because you're a government body. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we should say that currently the federal liberal liberal government is undertaking um, a review of the Canada Labor Code, part three of which regulates employment standards in the federal jurisdiction in Canada, which is somewhat limited because it only covers about 10% of workers in Canada. It's basically anybody who works in an industry that crosses a provincial border. So it's uh, transportation, road, rail, air, um, shipping, international, banking, telecommunications, um, things like that, and some strategic industries, like for some strange reason, wheat. So if you work at a, at a wheat elevator, you're regulated by the federal government rather than the province that you live in, and uh, uranium mining as well, because it's a strategic resource. So they're undertaking a review of the of the code that regulates employment in those in those industries, and you know there's potential for them to do some good. Actually, I would probably say that there's potential for them to do more good than in the provinces in terms of how far they can push because of the nature of the industries that they're regulating. They're far less subject to competition, foreign competition, and they don't have the same sort of like interprovincial dynamics of competition. Most of these industries are fairly protected. So, you can improve things like like, they, they actually have already improved vacation pay and vacation time for federally regulated workers, added um, a sort of third tier where you get four weeks of vacation and 8% pay rather than cutting it at 6% in three weeks, as the case is in Ontario. Um, but yes, they've been talking about, you know, ways to improve collective voice for, for workers in the federal jurisdiction. And I mean, essentially what they're saying there is that there needs to be on the... Enforcement side, so that is on the government side, on the Department of Labor's side. Ways that that they ensure that workers are protected, um, because when you look at, for example, who complains—that this is a good example—I mean, who complains when they have their rights uh, violated? It's workers who feel protected enough to complain. <laughs> so the administrative data that we're looking at tells you a sort of it gives you a profile about who complains. So you know, it gives you a sense of where there are violations, but it doesn't necessarily give you a really accurate sense because there could be a lot of violations in sectors where workers are too vulnerable to complain. So one way of providing voice is to just ensure that there's the administrative supports there so that people can actually exercise their rights under the law.
1: And there's a few alternative models that are sort of under consideration in some in some spaces, uh, such as workers' councils, mm-hmm. um, which I believe is like the European model that has been somewhat successful.
2: Yeah, and there's also, like, workers' action centers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, one thing that's different between the federal jurisdiction and, say, Ontario is that in the federal jurisdiction, third parties can lodge complaints. And in Ontario, that you can't do that. So, uh. the employee needs to lodge the complaint um, if they've, say, had their wages stolen. So, what that usually translates into is that most workers who complain about a workplace violation have already left that job. Most of the complaints emanate from people who are no longer employed with the employer they're complaining about because they were too afraid to do it when mm-hmm. they still worked there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in the federal jurisdiction, what essentially a workers' action center can lodge is a complaint on behalf of an anonymous employee. So that's a uh, also a really positive mechanism. That's pretty good. Probably not as uh, panacea,
0: but no. uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, maybe we can talk more about like the liberals' relationship to employment standards because. What I found is kind of they were hesitant, like you said before, to improve the ability for employer for employees to unionize, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of speaks to a broader sort of trend that some uh, industrial relations scholars have like pointed to of a sort of individualization of the employment relationship or employment protection, kind of. Mm-hmm. So. You know, some people I've read who have who've talked about like how this is a particular like a third way type dynamic of substituting employment standards for collective regulation. The third way being like Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, these sort of '90s center left figures who tried to shift. Uh, well, who successfully, very successfully, shifted social democracy to the right almost, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of emphasized this is the new sort of social democracy in which we are, you know, we're we're here to promote competitiveness of industry but also sort of protect workers. And that protection came in sort of like employment standards. Like, does that ring true to how the liberals approach these issues? Like, they want these sort of forms of legal protection but are very hesitant to embrace any sort of form of going back to, like, more collective regulation and the an expansion of unionization.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's something to that. They, they are looking for a kind of policy fix and not terribly concerned about getting workers into collective organizations like unions. I mean, that's just not who their constituency is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not a labor party. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, our labor party, NDP, is not particularly strong in that area either. One thing that, not certainly not to make apologies for the third way, folks, but I mean, they also did come at the sort of height of when these changes to the economy were really sort of in full tilt. I mean, mm-hmm. the move towards services, deindustrialization, mm-hmm. these complex ownership relationships. And I mean, if you look at sort of how they responded in the employment standards realm at the time, you had a real move toward what they call soft touch <laughs> regulation, which is a nice sounding word for taking protections away essentially, and moving to a kind of compliance-based model, which is basically the model they function under now. And what they assume is that employers are just ignorant, right? They're breaking the law because they don't know it. So, the role of the Ministry of Labor is to like show up with a PowerPoint slide and tell them about the laws that they're breaking and then try to encourage them not to do that Mm -hmm. instead of seeing that as like a structural part of how the economy functions in many of these low-wage sectors. I mean, Breaking the law is part of the business design <laughs> in a lot of these um, low-wage service sectors, where really the, the the margins are tight, profit margins on a lot of these companies, and they essentially are competing on the backs of workers.
0: Right. It also speaks to maybe even the limits of of labor standards. At the same time, it's like you can come up with these things, but as long as there's no labor power in the economy, you know, as long as there's no sort of solidarity there like in a real fundamental sense it's very hard to to monitor these standards and to make sure there is compliance because as you said i've seen in my local coffee shop i've been doing an over the course of my phd of an extended case study of the workers at this <laughs> coffee shop as i go there like every day and i've mm-hmm. come to known them known them and stuff and it's interesting how they a lot of them are um are immigrants uh, a lot of them are trying to get PR so you can have these employment standards but they don't first of all they don't know about them and they're not go- they're not about to bring them up because they have to keep this job in order to get the employer letter of recommendation for the PR and um, yeah and and there's violations that are rife like they, they tell me things that their manager wants them to do and I'm like this is this is ludicrous like signing out to go to the washroom like so you're not getting paid for to ensure you don't spend too long and things like that. And then like double booking them. So they only get like six hours of sleep before they have to come in for the morning open and things like that. The only time they've gotten a bit of modicum of like power, it has been recently when you have like more tight labor markets and they've been able to say, well, I'm just going to leave this job. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe if you could speak to what do you think the limits are, but then at the same time under a sort of, collective bargaining regime, it's not as if these people were were covered
2: either. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember. I mean, at its best, you know, unionization, collective bargaining only ever covered a third of workers really Mm -hmm. in both Canada and the United States. I mean, it's always been premised on a certain type of worker, usually male and a certain type of industry. So, it wasn't touching those workers to begin with. And sort of, I think it speaks to the nature, like we shouldn't necessarily think about you know, collective bargaining, industrial relations on the one hand involving like the power of workers and labor standards just being about like policy and like government enforcement. Like the way that labor standards are structured in the way that they're enforced is also a reflection of the balance of class forces in society, mm-hmm. right? I mean, people need to think about employment standards in a way that government responds to the pressure of organized workers, whether they're in unions or not. So there are other ways in order to improve what's on the law in terms of minimum standards and how you enforce them. So, this move towards a compliance-based approach, for example, really needs to go. It needs to be reverted back to a more deterrence-based approach where a workplace like the one you're describing actually is afraid of getting inspected. Right now, it's highly unlikely that they'd ever have a proactive inspection, and they know it. So, they just break the law anyways, and they they figure that the workers are scared enough that they won't say anything. And, you know, I mean, that's... That's a situation that's ripe for violations. Mm-hmm.
1: And the employment standards regime is sort of built on a foundational myth, which is that you can create a low floor, but people will exercise their negotiating contracting power with their employers to reach an appropriately high standard. But what we see is that that doesn't really happen in practice, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, especially without a commitment to full employment that actually functions anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Full employment
0: policy was sort of the Keynesian policy that many Western governments adhered to in to various degrees. Canada, not the greatest, like their language was fairly um, tepid on this, uh, but to maintain full employment in the economy, which they meant basically male full employment, you know, usually. But um, of like a low of like two to three percent unemployment is what you're going for. In the neoliberal period, I find what has happened is kind of like full, full employment policy has just like gone to the wayside. And what is left of full employment policy has tended to be an emphasis on skills and training and things like that. Like, So governments, instead of proactively trying to maintain full employment, it's now up to the individual and we'll give you some assistance to be employed. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. I mean, at an ideological level, it's basically government has stopped thinking about employment or unemployment as a collective project, right. that they should have a central place in, in regulating and organizing, and more a matter of like people's individual human capital. So, if you're unemployed, it's because you don't have the right skills or the right education, or you haven't tried hard enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know employment policy should basically be geared toward kicking you off whatever supports are available while you're unemployed and getting you back into the labor market. And that labor market, of course, is increasingly a low-wage labor market.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when I first heard of full employment in my undergrad, I thought the professor who was talking to me about it was lying. I was like, that's, <laughs> that's not, that couldn't have been a policy at some point. But uh, yeah. yeah. So, the, and, and my students are certainly the same way. Like, they don't, think, they don't think that's something the government can do.
2: Right. You know, in terms of what I was talking about with the compliance based model, I mean, a move back away from that toward deterrence like one thing comes to mind that I forgot to mention that I should mention is that along with that compliance-based model has been this move toward a kind of like mediation relationship. So say you're a worker, for example, who hasn't been receiving uh, his or her vacation pay and you lodge a complaint about it. Increasingly, what will happen is that employment standards officer will try to institute a mediation relationship between you and your employer rather than go in and sort of like investigate it as a a breach of the law and ensure that you get what's owed to you. They instead try to like mediate the situation. And what increasingly what we find is that workers are sort of bargaining down their rights in those situations. Like maybe you get half the vacation pay that you're owed and that way they can close the case and move on to the next one. And understaffed agencies move towards that kind of a model. So rather than enforce the law, they kind of like mediate this relationship that is highly unequal to begin with.
0: Yeah, that's like uh, landlords too.
2: It's landlords entirely built the on the same yeah. model, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: so Adam, uh, we began the interview with a broad look at uh, the U.S. federal election and what Bernie Sanders proposes for changes. How? What do you see for as recommendations for Canada? Like what can we do in Canada to improve our situation?
2: I guess I'll start by saying that The liberal government, federally, Trudeau's government, has done a couple of things that are worth noting. So this expert panel that we've been talking about has been making recommendations since around 2017. So the budget in 2018, they introduced an omnibus bill, which contained several changes to the federal labor code. So um, for starters, they extended the length of parental leave, which was nice to see, although without a match in EI benefits, it's a bit hollow. Um, So that could be improved. Um, On a number of leaves, they removed um, eligibility requirements. So before, in order to access like a sickness leave, for example, you would need to be employed by the same employer for usually like three to six months, depending on what the leave is. So they got rid of those. So on your date of hire, if you happen to get sick, you can take a long-term sickness leave. That's a, it sounds like a minor step, but it's actually really important because Most of the people who were formally denied access those leaves, again, tended to be the people who are in non-standard forms of employment, like women, for example, much harder to access um, paid leaves. So, they've made that easier, which is good. And they introduced what's called a reverse onus clause, which goes back to this issue that we were talking about around uh, complex employment structures. So, independent contracting has been a major issue recently. It's essentially where an employer classifies you as not an employee, but an independent contractor. It's like a business to business relationship instead of treating you like an employee. And what that does is remove all your rights to employment standards altogether. So no rights around minimum wage or working time or access to holidays or uh, vacation pay, anything like that. And also removes things like contributions to employment insurance and access to the program and the Canadian pension plan. So this reverse onus clause, basically if uh, a worker challenges their status as an independent contractor and says, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm an employee and challenges that to uh, the ministry of labor, the employer now has to prove that you're an independent contractor and not an employer and not an employee. Sorry. So that's an important step. Um, it potentially lays the groundwork for getting rid of a lot of this uh, misclassification of people as independent contractors. It's a big step. They recently did something like that in California as well. If we could get provisions like that across the country, it would be very helpful. It would effectively move a lot of people back into a traditional employment relationship where they could properly access their rights. All of those things, not to put a dark spin on it, are highly precarious given the federal election that's looming this October. I mean, we could very much see a similar dynamic play out that we saw in Ontario. Scheer gets elected and removes these sort of minor progressive provisions that the Liberals have put in place.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast, Adam. This was an interesting discussion, it really was.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, it's been great.
1: Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast.
0: Thanks again for listening.
1: Bye. Bye.